Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 11, From Oikos to Polis. On Episode 8, we discussed the society that was described in Homer, but we only gave attention to the Basileis, as that was what Homer's accounts were based on. But now we must circle back and discuss the community, household, and economy in the late Dark Age. At the beginning of the 8th century BC, most Greek settlements were still quite small, containing only a few dozen families. A handful of major settlements, such as Argos, Athens, Corinth, and Sparta, probably held several hundred or more families. All of the important sites, and most of the smaller ones, had been continuously occupied since the Bronze Age, for the obvious reason that they were good places for people to live. With their surrounding fields and pastures, they were mostly economically self-sufficient. But their life still centered on the village. An isolated family living out in the countryside was rare, even in early Greece. Farmers lived in the villages and walked out each morning to their plots, as they still do today in rural areas of Greece. As such, Greek villages were enduring, close-knit communities as the various families lived side by side for generations, intermarrying with other families in the village and in other villages of the Demos. The small village can be likened to an extended family, with the village Basileus as a sort of patriarch. As we saw a few episodes ago, law was based upon tradition. On the whole, public disapproval deterred most bad behavior. Difficult disputes were resolved, by the Basileis, and the simple court of the village elders. Survival of the village depended upon cooperation amongst the families, as they could not afford to let bad feeling between the neighbors and relatives destroy the solidarity of the community. Social relationships were somewhat more complex in the larger settlements of several thousand inhabitants, but they were not qualitatively different. The separate settlements within a territorial demos were likewise linked together by bonds of kinship and interdependence. Villages might quarrel with one another, and the inhabitants might even come to blows, but they were unified against threat from the outside. This concept can best be illustrated from an incident in the Odyssey. When Odysseus and his men were on their way home from Troy, they attacked and pillaged a seacoast town of a people called the Sicones. Instead of sailing off immediately, as Odysseus had ordered, the men stayed all night, feasting on the plundered cattle, sheep, and wine. The next morning, the Sicones, along with the men from the neighboring villages, counterattacked and killed a number of Odysseus' men before they could escape in their ships. All of these people consider themselves kin to one another, as did Ithacans or Athenians. Inside the boundary of these various villages that shared the name of the same Demos, an individual or family was safe. But once outside, they were in the demos of others, where the protection of tribal ties ended, and a stranger was without rights. We mentioned two episodes ago that for this reason, how the practice of exenia was critical for mobility throughout the Dark Age Greek world. The largest community that a Greek experienced was his demos, but the smallest and fundamental social unit was his oikos, or household. The oikos was the center of a person's existence, and the overriding concern of every family member was its preservation 
economic independence, and social standing. The oikos was not only the household itself, but also the family, the land, the livestock, and all other property and goods, including slaves. We will go into much greater detail about the oikos down the road when we talk about daily life of the ancient Greeks in the classical period, but for now it is important to mention because these independent regions organized by kinship groups and the oikoi, the plural, would become the origins of the polis. In any event, as we have seen, Greek society was patrilineal and patriarchal. The father was supreme in the household, by custom and later by law. Descent was through the father, and on his death, the property was divided equally among his sons. Although daughters did not inherit directly, they did receive at least a portion of their parents' wealth in the form of a wedding dowry. A new bride usually took up residence in the house of her husband, and she and her future children now belonged to the oikos of her husband, not to her father's any longer. However, in Homeric society, the oikoi of the leading families, which are the only ones described, are residentially compact units. For instance, the five married sons of Nestor, the Basileus of Pylos, continued to reside in his oikos with their wives and children, occupying separate rooms set off from the main dwelling. Moreover, Nestor's married daughters also lived in the family compound with their husbands. In the Dark Age, it is a common practice for a Basileus to bring his daughter's husbands into his household, in contradiction of the normal custom, because in this way, the Basileus retains his daughter's labor and also gains a man and children, which maximize the fighting and labor force of his own oikos, which he needed to be large in order to maintain his power and influence. Another common strategy for increasing manpower in Homeric society was for the Basileus to beget children by slave women, even though this could cause friction in the house between husband and wife. For instance, Laertes, Odysseus's father, did not sleep with the bot slave Eurycliae, who was Odysseus's and later Telemachus's wet nurse, to avoid his wife's anger. Although the male children of slave women were inferior to legitimate sons with respect to inheritance rights, they were otherwise full members of the family and were part of its fighting and labor force. Illegitimate females, though, had the same status as their legitimate half-sisters, since they didn't have any inheritance rights anyway. Abasileus also strengthened his oikos by recruiting non-related men to serve the household in various capacities in peace and as fighters in war. They essentially were hired mercenaries who lived in the oikos. Some of these, in effect, became adopted members of the family. For the elite oikoi, the aim is clear. They wanted to have the largest possible number of members, either by birth, marriage, or affiliation. Males of fighting age were especially sought. Telemachus was helpless against his mother's suitors because there were no kinsmen to back him up. As the only son of an only son, he had no brothers. Brothers-in-law, uncles, or cousins. And in addition, his father's hetairoi were all with Odysseus at Troy. All members of an oikos did a share of the work. The husband and sons tended the flocks and herds, the main wealth of the family, and also did farm work and other household jobs. The wife and daughters of a Basileus worked alongside the women slaves in the tasks of spinning and weaving, the most important domestic activities. The labor input of women in cloth production amounted to nearly a full-time occupation. 
The daughters did other tasks too, such as fetching water from the communal fountain or washing clothes by the river. Most of the labor by the wealthy oikos, however, was provided by female and male slaves, either bought or captured, and by hired workers, called thetes, the singular sthes, who were poor free men. Poor free women, usually widows without any kin, also worked for wages, as spinners and weavers, or as nursemaids. Homer says that these people labored under necessity. The main economic resource for each of the families in a village or town was its ancestral plot of farmland, called a kleros, the plural is kleroi. It is not known how these were originally acquired, but regardless, the oikos now knew it was theirs and could pass it on to future generations. This stability changed everything. They were now willing to take the risk of cultivating permanent crops because it was their land. During this time, population gradually increased. It eventually reached a point that a city needed to expand physically, as marginal land was forced to be worked. There was both success and failure. Subsequently, new farming techniques were learned with Greece's reconnection with the Near East. For instance, they learned to switch up crops so that they didn't exhaust the soil. In regards to wine, the knowledge of viticulture, or how to grow grapes, and also arboriculture, how to cultivate trees, specifically vines in this instance was reintroduced. In order for them to be more successful as farmers, they would use the equipment necessary themselves to turn their crops into a finished product, such as olives into olive oil or grapes into wine, cutting out the middleman. If a farmer happened to have surplus, he could trade it for those crops which he didn't make himself. These farms were small though. The typical one was 10 acres, but it's important that there was an emergence of an agricultural community of small family farms, which settled around the acropolis of their polis. Also, slavery became increasingly more common with the development of small family farms. During the Dark Ages, slavery was very rare, because you had to feed them year-round, for only a few months of work. But with the development of year-round farming techniques, it was profitable to have a slave again. The typical oikos owned one or two, who worked alongside the master, Thus, the gradual invention of the family farm was a critical process in the rise of the polis, and ironically, it gave rise to both the freedom of the Greeks and the growth in slavery. At first, the kleroi was distributed among the inhabitants on a more or less equal basis. Yet, however, inequality soon crept in. In Homer, some families owned many kleroi, while others in the demos are landless men called akleroi, literally meaning without a kleros. Although there is no way of determining the percentages of either the land-rich or the landless within the populations, most likely both groups were proportionately small. It is highly probable that most families owned a kleros that gave them a sufficient living. The economies of the ordinary and elite oikoi differed primarily in scale. The prominent oikoi had large workforces, whereas average households had only one or perhaps two slaves or hired hands to share the workload. High-ranking families also farmed proportionately more land, needed to feed their larger households, and to supply for the feasts they provided to friends, and the community at large. The agricultural surpluses of the elite, however, would not have risen much above their own increased consumption needs, since at that time, there was little opportunity for trade and foodstuff. The major economic difference between rich and poor oikoi seems to have been in the number of animals owned. 
An ordinary farmer would have had a yoke of oxen for plowing, perhaps a mule. He undoubtedly pastured some sheep and goats for his family's wool, cheese, and manure needed for vegetation. But his oikos, even with a slave or two, was too small to herd large numbers of animals or to maintain the many pens required. Only the elite could command the labor force for such large-scale stock-raising. Thus, their families enjoyed an abundance of meat, as well as a large surplus of wool and hides. In fact, it was probably woolen goods and leather that paid for the imported metal goods and luxury items that these Dark Age elites valued. The main value of livestock, though, was as meats for feasts, something only the elite could provide in quantity. Animal wealth was therefore prestige wealth. The very sight of large herds roving the pastures and hillsides was evidence of the owner's rank and status. It was also proof of his prowess as a warrior, since the most prestigious way of acquiring animals, as well as other treasures, was by raiding. Thus, there's a certain circularity in this animal economy. Basileis slaughtered large numbers of their animals in order to recruit warriors for raids that were conducted primarily for the purpose of acquiring more animals to slaughter. It was in no means efficient in purely economic terms. But the aim of acquiring wealth was not to keep it, but to exchange it for influence and reputation. The fact that cattle are the regular measurements of the worth of other kinds of objects is proof of the high value placed on them in Homeric society. For example, in the Iliad, the first prize in a wrestling contest is a large bronze tripod, which the Achaeans valued at 12 cattle's worth. This does not mean, however, that cattle was used as actual payment. Rather, in an exchange of goods, the transacting parties mentally converted the value of the objects involved into cattle as the standard of value, a practice common in pre-monetary societies. In fact, in Latin, the root of the word for money, pecunia, is pecus, which means livestock. Furthermore, we will discuss coinage in later episodes, after it gets invented, but the name for one of the Greek coins is an opal, which also was the word for a metal spit, or a long rod that is placed over the fire to roast meat. Therefore, although the archaeologically visible wealth in the graves of the Dark Age may show cultural decline, it does not begin to measure the true extent of elite wealth and social power in Greece. Nevertheless, the economic and social gulf between the top stratum and the mass of small farmers was not nearly as wide in the Dark Age as it had been in the Late Bronze Age. If anything, we would expect Homer to exaggerate the differences in the lifestyles of the chiefs and the ordinary folk, but instead he shows the elite living not that much more luxuriously. Though the elite do have some things the others cannot afford, such as horses and precious metal items, most of the distinctions are merely relative, as they have more or better of something. The daily lives of Homeric Basileis and their families are easier and more pleasant. They have more servants and more leisure time. Yet all in all, their way of life is similar to those in the average households. The Homeric poems and the material record concur that social class distinctions between the nobles and the commoners was not very wide in the 10th and 9th centuries BC. However, things would begin to change in the late 8th century BC. In addition to the cultural and economic changes that were happening in Greece, 
Equally as important were the political and social developments taking place during the following stage in Greece's developmental history, called the Archaic Period, which lasts around 800 to 500 BC. The term archaic derives from the Greek archaeos, which means old, and this label was attached to this period originally by art historians who judged the style of art as looking more old-fashioned than the more naturalistic art of the Classical Age. The Archaic period also was long considered to have been less important and historically less interesting than the Classical period, and was primarily studied as a precursor to it. But now the Archaic Age has come to be recognized as one of the formative periods in Greek history. With this reassessment of the significance of the Archaic period, some scholars have objected to the term archaic, but no term which has been suggested to replace it has gained widespread acceptance yet. Much of our evidence about the classical period of ancient Greece comes from contemporaneous written histories. By contrast, we have no such evidence from the Archaic period. Although some later classical accounts record traditions from the Archaic period, they are telling details centuries later, so therefore must be taken with certain level of skepticism. In any event, contemporaneously, we do have written evidence in the form of poetry and epigraphical inscriptions, including parts of law codes, inscriptions on votive offerings, and epigrams inscribed on tombs. However, none of this evidence is in the quantity for which we have it in the classical period. What is lacking in written evidence, however, is made up for in the rich archaeological evidence from the archaic Greek world. Indeed, where much of our knowledge of classical Greek art comes from later Roman copies, all of the surviving archaic Greek art is original. The archaic period is also very complicated, and thus it's best to deal with this period thematically, rather than chronologically, because there's just so much going on and in various places. But this is the period in which we can see the formation of a uniquely Greek identity that separated itself from the other eastern Mediterranean communities. Homer was a cultural possession as a defining cultural entity for the Greeks. Another was the city-state, or polis. The Archaic Age saw the gradual culmination of developments in cultural, social, and political organization that moved Greece away from an illiterate Dark Age society with relatively few sites to the polis. A polis had two principal features that separated it from other polis, the plural. One is an internal unity, and the other is an independence from other communities nearby. The essential elements of the polis were in place during the late Dark Age. The territorial community, the demos, appears fully evolved in the Homeric epics, and therefore the concept of the land and the people being one and the same must go back generations before Homer. Within a demos, there was a collective identification such as Ithacans or Athenians, in a communal worship of the same gods. The two primary governmental organs of the polis, the Assembly of Men of Fighting Age and the Council of Elders, appear firmly established in the Homeric chiefdoms. All that was lacking to make the demos communities into the polis were certain necessary formalities. The formal political unification of the demos and the creation of a central government. Later Greeks referred to the process of political unification of states as sinoikismos, 
which can literally be translated as having oikoi together. Sinoicism, to use the anglicized term, was the process by which every town and village of a demos accepted a single political center and identified themselves by the name of the new capital city. For instance, all those who lived in the territory of Attica, of which Athens was the capital city, referred to themselves and were referred to by others as Athenians, even those who lived 25 miles away from the city of Athens. All of the members of that territory, both those who lived in the town and those who lived in the countryside, were called polite, meaning members of the polis, or citizens, as if they all lived together in the town. The singular is polites. Together, these people embodied a political state, and it was this partnership that represented the distinctive political characteristics of the polis. No matter the governmental structure of a polis, whether it be a monarchy, oligarchy, or democracy, a citizen was only a native-born, free, adult male. Women, foreigners, children, and slaves were excluded from political participation. Sinoicism took different forms, depending on the size of the territory. Each region of Greece experienced its own kind of polis development, which was determined by local factors unknown to us. The important fact is that by around 700 BC, the permanent boundaries of the Greek polis were pretty well established. Some adjustments continued to be made here and there, as a smaller polis may have been absorbed by a larger neighboring polis. But the political map remained relatively the same moving forward. Sinoicism of a small demos made up of a single town and its adjacent plain, holding a couple of subsidiary villages, was a very simple process. As a point of reference, the polis of Sicyon occupied a small region of about 140 square miles and contained only a few villages in addition to the main city center because everyone lived within a few miles of everyone else and most of the few hundred families in the demos were interrelated. Drawing them together as a single political unit was merely a matter of making formal the ancient ties of kinship and precisely defining the territorial boundaries of the demos. Most of the several hundred polis that came into existence during the Archaic period were of this variety, being a single town and its small plain. The majority, in fact, were even smaller in territory than Sicyon. On the other hand, Sinoicism of those regions that contained several important towns and villages, besides the central town, was a more complex process and is not well understood. In his Life of Theseus, a 1st century AD biographer named Plutarch tells us about the mythology surrounding the Sinoicism of Athens. He credits it to one man, Theseus, who had the great idea to bring all the villages together into one community by setting up a common shrine so everyone in the countryside can come together and worship, and holding games or festivals to create a sense of civic identity. We will talk more about this myth in future episodes when we deal with early Athens. But this surely was not the doing of one man, though. And scholarly opinion is that the unification of these kind of states was a drawn-out process, beginning possibly in the 9th century BC and finishing by 700 BC but it does provide a hint of how religion may have been used to promote unity within regions, which can be backed by archaeology. 
It is thought that during the 8th century BC, temples and shrines to the gods and heroes of a regional demos were first built in the countryside to connect the center symbolically to the outlying villages. Religious processions from the main polis to the outer sanctuaries would have fostered and strengthened the sense of being a single nation. Furthermore, presiding over the polis as a protector and patron was a particular god, like Athena and Athens, from whom the city took its name. Different communities could choose the same deity as their protector. For instance, Sparta also had Athena as its patron god. In some regions, unification was voluntary and peaceful, as in Megara and Corinth. There is evidence, however, that in other regions, intimidation and even force was used to integrate the towns and villages into a single polis. For instance, the original four villages of Sparta absorbed the village of Amicle, which was three miles to the south, into the unified Spartan polis against its will and reduced the more distant settlements of Laconia to a dependent status. There will be more on this in future episodes, when we touch upon early Sparta. Cenoicism was also incomplete in some regions. Argos, for example, never fully succeeded in unifying the whole of the large region of the Argolis, and a number of small, separate, independent poles continued to exist in the Argive plain. Likewise, Thebes was not able to unify Boeotia and controlled only their local area. The history of Greece between 700 and 400 BC was primarily the history of the poles for they were the main makers of Greek history. There were, however, huge areas of Greece that had a different form of political organization. The Greek name for these regions was ethnos, variously translated as tribe, nation, or people. An ethnos was a regional territory and people without a single urban center, central government, or formal political union. The Greek polis tended to regard the ethne, the plural, as politically and culturally backwards. In fact, the ethne of the 7th and 6th centuries BC were at a stage very much like that of the regional demoi in the Dark Age. Each ethnos had a strong sense of being a single people occupying a single territory. The people were united in worshipping of their gods. They had institutions for reaching common decisions and for acting as a unit. No single town, however, was the official capital of the ethnos. And as in Homeric society, united action occurred infrequently, mostly in situations of common defense against an outside enemy. The word polis first appears in Homer, but it has a much different definition, referring only to a physical town where the people lived. But the later definition is significantly different and more abstract. In Homer, family and the individual were more important to the heroes, than any obligation to their city. For example, when Achilles refused to fight, he was allowed to do so because he came there to earn personal wealth and glory for himself, not for his polis. But that mindset would change completely in the preceding centuries, and the archaic polis would become a completely revolutionary concept. It is not merely a city-state in the same way as the Mesopotamian city-states of the 3rd millennium BC such as Ur or Kish. Those places were simply the place where the king or the emperor ruled, where the main god's palace was located, and where the bureaucrats were to do their business. The Greek polis would become a small but sovereign political state, in which the people were held together by something much more complex than their Homeric counterpart. 
that is, the rule of law. Aristotle lived in the 4th century BC, at a time when the polis as an institution was in decline, as the Macedonians were bearing down on the Greeks. But he wrote glowingly about the polis and his politics, because for him the polis is where human beings are meant to live. He says that justice can be found only in the polis, because man is by nature a politicon zuon, or an animal of the polis, by which he meant that, just as birds live best in the air and fish in the sea, so human beings are creatures that do best living in the polis. The polis is the natural habitat for a human being. In the same general passage, he says that a man who is without a polis by nature is above or below the category of being a man, meaning he is either divine or beneath what it is to be a human being, because only the gods and animals or monsters live without nomoi or laws. For example, Odysseus encounters the monstrous Cyclopes, who lived without laws and had nothing to do with one another, meaning they weren't a part of a community. Thus, they are seen as barbarians, living outside what it means to be a human being. Laws were also referred to as themes, the plurals themistes, or dike, the plurals dikai, because the laws in this period are the ancestral customs, rules, and judgments which have evolved from generation to generation to regulate society and to make civilized life possible. Likewise, both Themis and Dike were both personified goddesses dealing with the rule of law. To the Greeks, justice is an element only of the polis. The administration of justice is the regulation of the polis. Man can't live without the polis, and justice exists only in the polis. Furthermore, the 6th century BC lyric poet Alcius wrote, Not houses finely roofed, or the stone of walls well built. No, not canals or dockyards make the polis, but men, able to use their opportunity. Late in the 5th century BC, Thucydides, in his history of the Peloponnesian War, has one of his generals speak to his men and say, Men are the polis. A polis is more than just a physical place. It's the people and the laws that make up a polis, and therefore a polis can be transferred geographically. For example, after the Persians conquered the Greek cities of Asia Minor in the late 6th century BC, when they came to the coastal city of Phocaea, the Phocians had a choice of giving bread and water to the great king and becoming subjects of the Persians. They chose instead to take all the people in their city, put them on ships, sail to the far west, and organize a new city in southern Italy, where they did pretty well for themselves afterwards. But they believed that they had taken their polis with them because they moved their entire city there, meaning their people, customs, laws, and so forth. Furthermore, during the Persian Wars, when Themistocles was trying to convince his fellow Greeks to stay and fight at Salamis, they were reluctant to do so. So he said that they wouldn't stay and fight either, and since all his men were already located on their ships, they will take these ships, sail them away to Italy, and settle on Athens in Italy. The Spartans took them very seriously and agree to stay and fight at Salamis. It seems that the evolution of the polis as a socio-political structure, rather than a simply geographical one, can be attributed to this urbanization, as well as a significant population increase in archaic Greece in the 8th century BC. These two factors created a need for a new form of political organization. 
as the political systems in place at the beginning of the Archaic period quickly became unworkable. Physically, though, Apollos was a group of small farming villages located around a high citadel called the Acropolis, from the Greek words akros, meaning highest or top of, and polis, and thus meaning the highest point of the city. Near the slope of the Acropolis was the Astu, or urban center, where the administrative buildings and central shrines were located. There was also a common marketplace for trade and politics, called an agora. There initially were no city walls. If the polis was invaded, everybody ran up onto the Acropolis for defense. But in some settlements, this political unification also spurned on a physical unification. As walls were built in the case of Smyrna in the mid-8th century BC and Corinth by the middle of the 7th century BC. As we have seen, Greece is a very mountainous country, which discouraged large political unions. Thus, typically a mountain range or body of water was the dividing line between two polis. Sometimes, however, an artificial boundary was created. For example, archaeologists have found a stone that on one side says, This is Athens, not Megara. And on the other side that says, This is Megara, not Athens. A normal reason for fighting between the Greeks occurred over the boundaries of two polis when no natural boundary was in place. According to Aristotle, you can't have a polis of just 10 citizens, nor can you have 100,000 either. This was because it had to be big enough to be self-sufficient, but small enough for the citizens to know one another as well. Aristotle says that the right size of a polis was 5,000 male adults, because all citizens could be able to go to a central place and hear someone speak and know who the person speaking is. In fact, most polis were well under 5,000 citizens. Athens had gained control of the entire region of Attica, so that all inhabitants were considered Athenians, roughly a thousand square miles. Attica held between 250,000 to 300,000 people, and at its zenith, it contained between 40,000 to 50,000 citizens, or adult male Athenians. Athens was by far the largest polis in terms of population, but Sparta, which would eventually control two-fifths of the Peloponnese, or about 3,300 square miles, after consolidating Laconia and conquering Messenia, was the biggest in terms of territory. Corinth was an enormously important polis too, but was only 340 square miles. And some of the island communities were smaller yet, but many possessed significant naval fleets, which allowed them to control wide areas of territory across the Aegean. Other important polis were Thebes, Syracuse in Sicily, Agina, Rhodes, Argos, Eretria, and Elis. Keep in mind, though, that eventually there were over a thousand polis in the Greek world. Herodotus, the first historian of the 5th century BC, tells us about the visit of Solon, an Athenian who was one of the seven sages of antiquity, to Croesus's palace in Lydia. Scholars are unsure about whether this took place or not, but regardless, it's important because it speaks about the Greek view. After Croesus showed Solon his great wealth, he asked him who he thought was the most fortunate he had ever seen in all of his travels. Solon answered, Telos of Athens, astonishing Croesus. Solon gave him three reasons for his choice. First, his polis was flourishing during his life, 
Second, he himself had been blessed with two sons, both Kalos, Kagathos, beautiful and good, and lived to see his grandchildren growing up. Finally, he died a glorious death in battle, defending his polis, and was buried on the spot, and given many honors. Croesus was astonished that a dead Athenian, nobody heard of, was the most fortunate to Solon. Solon's answers can be interpreted this way. It is not possible for a man who lived in a polis, not doing well to be happy. Also, in antiquity, having sons meant immortality, because your memory persists through them. Finally, the greatest form of immortality can be achieved by fighting honorably and dying in defense of your polis. Thus your memory would last as long as your polis lasted. This is also exemplified in the poems of Tertius, a Spartan poet whose poetry became so central to their way of thinking and living that they were used as marching songs for the Spartan army as they walked. Plato analyzes the polis in the Republic, whose Greek title, Politeia, itself derives from the word polis. This idea of politeia is itself incredibly complicated. It can mean either constitution of a polis, the citizen body as a whole, or citizenship, abstractly defined. Plato uses it here to talk about the best government, or constitution of a polis, that leads to the common good. The philosopher king is the best ruler because, as a philosopher, he is acquainted with the form of the good. In Plato's analogy of the ship of a state, the philosopher king steers the polis as if it were a ship, in the best direction. Plato also addresses the makeup of an ideal polis. In the Republic, Socrates is concerned with two underlying principles of any society, mutual needs and differences and aptitude. Starting from these two principles, Socrates deals with the economic structure of an ideal polis. According to Plato, there are five main economic classes of any polis. You have the producers, the merchants, the sailors and ship owners, retail traders, and wage earners. Along with the two principles and five economic classes, there are four virtues, which include wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice. With all of these principles, classes, and virtues, it was believed that a just polis would exist. Solon, in his treatise defending his changes to the Athenian government in the 6th century BC, said that good government straightens out crooked men and swollen ambitions and puts an end to factional strife. When a polis has unomia, or good laws, life is harmonious, and when they are dysnomia, bad laws, life is intolerable. This is a strong and powerful claim that was characteristic of Greek political thought. A polis provides laws that shape the character of mankind, not just to punish wrongdoers, which is the modern conception of laws. If a polis is good, then the men of the polis must be good too. One of the problems with the Greek ideal of men putting the polis before themselves is that men are naturally selfish from birth. Pericles combats this in his funerary oration found in Thucydides by saying that an individual can achieve his highest goals and needs only in a polis. The polis was necessary and was the center of a man's life. His role in the polis was to be an active and loyal citizen. There never was the concept of a citizen before the polis. Before, 
the people were just subjects to a king or a chieftain. Now they are free, because nobody owns a citizen. The downside to this, though, is that every polis wanted to be the best, which resulted in constant warfare. In fact, the Greeks fought much more amongst each other than any other civilization because no one great power was able to dominate the entire region. On the flip side, though, the Greeks had autonomy. For the Greeks, polis identity becomes part of personal identity. We can see this in the beginning of the two great histories from the Greek world. Herodotus identifies himself not as Herodotus, but Herodotus of Halicarnassus. Likewise, Thucydides calls himself Thucydides the Athenian. The intensity of identification between citizen and polis is critical in our understanding of how the Greeks viewed their place in the world. The polis served as the characteristic social and political organization for the Greeks until the Roman period. As an ideal, the polis has had enormous significance in the history of later nations. The very words politics, policy, and polis are derived directly from polis and are indicative of our polis-centered Hellenic worldview. On the next episode, now that we have looked at the formation of the polis and its abstract nature, we will circle back around and look at the transitional governments in the early stages of the centrally unified polis as the waning power of the Basileus becomes supplanted by a land-owning group of nobles. Then we will dive into the economic and social divisions in the early polis between the nobles and the commoners, brought on by a spike in population in Greece. Finally, we will look at our second great author of ancient Greece, a man named Hesiod, who speaks to us about life and society in the emerging polis from the point of view of the ordinary citizen. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 12, Oligarchs and Hesiod. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes on your phone every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you are checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Thanks everyone for your continued support, and I hope you are enjoying the podcast. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled Ode to Aphrodite from his album The Ancient Greek Liar. If you like what you heard and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientliar.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.